You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tonight's scripture comes from Mark 1, verses 14 through 31. Mark 1, 14 through 31. Now, after John was... Sorry. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called to them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately... There was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. Uh, My name's Casey. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Free City. And if you're with us uh, for the first time, uh, you came on a great Sunday. We get to celebrate baptisms. And uh, there's some rules that that you need to know when we do baptisms at the end. Uh, First off, you have a speaking part. Um, you can just, uh, you don't actually have to say it out loud if it scares you, but it'll be up on the screen. It's actually, I need some people to be really on it because it's actually the part I always forget. Like there's a part where, you know, it's like the people of God, what do you have to say? And I always forget it. And so if I forget it, someone start it, it'll be up on the screen. Uh, but you have a speaking part. You also have a cheering part. Like uh, this is the, the moment we, we want to make little kids cry, not because that's fun for us. Uh, but they witness people going underwater and then the masses cheering for it. And uh, they might not know what that kind of cheer is. But man, we want to really celebrate that. Um, and then if you have kids in kids uh, before we baptize, uh, you need to go get them. Because we want everyone to be a part of it, to hear the testimonies. Uh, we want kids to see other people being baptized to start to ask questions uh, to their parents of what does that mean? What does it mean to cross over from death to life? What does it mean 
uh, to call Jesus as Lord, and why do we have to be baptized? And then if you want to be baptized, you need to get in while we're still here because we can have hot water here, um, and that is not something we can always promise you um, at all, at all, at all, at all. Um, and so you're here uh, on a great Sunday. You're also here on a great Sunday because, uh, man, we're opening up the scriptures together, and we're looking at the gospel of Mark. The, the, the gospel of Mark is like the, the gospel of action. I actually, uh, sometimes when we start a series um, and we're in that, I'll, I'll just Google image something. And so I'll Google image like the gospel of Mark just to see what comes up. Because a lot of times, you know, historical art, you know, comes up. And you get to see how, you know, different centuries have thought about this. And uh, I Googled this, the Gospel of Mark, and what came up was um, a, a meme where it had like the historical, you know, of Matthew, the historical picture of Matthew, the historical picture of Luke, and the historical picture of John. And then it came to Mark, and it had Shane from Mulan, which is the, uh, if you know, that, it's, let's get down to business, um, which uh, when we used to watch it, Cruz was little, he would always like kind of karate breakdance. Uh, it, was, it was fun. He doesn't do it as much anymore, but... Uh, but that, that, that really is what Mark is. Like what we see Mark is we see the movement of God. Like we see Jesus moving so fast. Like he jumps in. And I mean, even in this, these small verses, like this isn't a huge swath. He's doing a lot and specifically on the doing. More than any other gospel. The gospel of Mark wants to show you Jesus Christ bringing the kingdom of God. Like, like, like if we look at Jesus, like we look at Matthew, when he taught us to pray, he said this, he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And it doesn't always come out in, in, in the translation, but it's progressive, like the coming of the kingdom is progressive, meaning it has started and it is still unfolding in our lives and around us until Jesus comes back to fully consummate it all. Like the kingdom of God started 2,000 years ago in the actions of Jesus. And the gospel of Mark wants to capture those for us. Like it's actually Peter's gospel. Like he he was the first one to write it down. There, there was really, you know, the Gospels came a little bit later than the, the epistles because there wasn't necessarily a need to really write them down because there were so many eyewitnesses to, to Jesus. And as, you know, as the church aged and as people started to die, they said, man, we got to record. We got to be eyewitnesses of everything we saw Jesus say and do. And so Mark is the earliest gospel and it's a gospel of the kingdom of God coming. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And, and it's glorious. Like what do we see? We, we, we see the sick are, are being healed. We see the tormented are, are being set free. We see the poor get an audience with King Jesus. We see all of this unfolding through Jesus. The kingdom of God is undoing all that is wrong all around us and in us. And it is a foretaste of what Jesus' kingdom is like. In Mark, we see the powerful and authoritative son of God undoing so much. And as we're looking at this, we're going to be in Mark for a little while. 
what do you want Jesus to undo in your life? Like, like, like just, I mean, pray about that. Is there something in your life that you would say, man, there's a special amount of darkness or suffering or hurting there? Like, whatever it is, what do you want Jesus to undo? Like, we see so much getting undone. This was a while ago, and uh, my mother-in-law, she uh, gave our kids some gifts, and I don't know if it was a holiday or a birthday. It, it doesn't actually have to be any of those things. Like, she loves to give gifts, and our kids always love it. We don't always, always love it, uh, because sometimes those things are destined for the landfill really, really quick. But I remember because uh, Liv, she got a Rubik's Cube, like, she got a Rubik's Cube, and I remember she just thought it was the coolest thing, and I, when I looked at her, I knew what she was thinking. I'm going to mess this up, and I'll reorder it so easily, and it's just like, I will undo it and redo it, and, you know, she would undo it a little bit, and then redo it back, and then undo it a little bit more, and then she would redo it a little bit more back until it just got too undone. And I remember, I saw it happening. She brought me the Rubik's Cube and it was all messed up. And she said, can you help me? Can you fix this? And I was like, you got the wrong dad for that. I mean, I've seen YouTube where people like blindfolded behind their back why their Navy SEALs swimming, like do the Rubik's Cubes. And it's just, you've got the wrong dad. I can't do that. And what she was asking was like, can you bring beauty back to this? Can you restore what's been lost? Can you order the chaos with your hands? And it was the moment where like, unless you take those stickers off, there's no one doing that. That's what we need to come to Jesus with. We need to come to Jesus with, my hands have messed this up, or someone else's hands have messed this up, and we just need to hold up. Can you undo this? And the gospel of Mark is the doings of Jesus are giving a foresight of what the kingdom of God is all about when he undoes so many things around us. If any part of your life has been lost, if there's lost order or lost beauty or any part needs to be restored, you need hands that can reestablish the kingdom of God in your life. And we're so prone to go to hands that can't do it. Like we, we think, man, that relationship, those hands will make me fit right. Or man, we think if I strengthen my own knowledge or my ability, then those hands will fix it. And we need the creator's hands. And let me warn you, if you've ever seen someone do a Rubik's Cube, it's got to get way messier before it gets better. You, you get one side and it has all one color but one dot. You can't fix that dot without messing up that whole side. So many times when Jesus steps into our life, he says, you have underestimated the mess of your life. And he starts to pull it apart and it feels like he's disordering everything about what you treasure but the hands that have scars in them can also heal. And so let's get in on this. Look at verse 14. I'm gonna tell you the points here in a couple of verses. You don't get them yet. So verse 14, it says, now after John was arrested, now Ethan preached about John. Like, let's just stop for a second. Like, think about that. John 
was arrested. Like this was the John who was sent ahead of Jesus to prepare the way. Like we read about the first part of Mark. This was the John who came wearing camel hair, eating locusts and honey, and preached, repent for the kingdom of God. is here. This is the John that Jesus is going to say, no prophet, no prophet is greater than John. Like, that's this John. Like, that's this John. And right now, this John is wrongfully arrested And we know it's about to get worse if you've read Mark. In Mark 16, or I'm sorry, Mark 6, he's going to be wrongfully put to death. Like this is a moment that John would have held up his Rubik's Cube and he'd said, this doesn't look right. Like actually, if we even look further, we see that at a moment in Matthew, he actually questions it. Like he comes back, he sends a message to Jesus and he says, listen, are, are you the one or is there someone else who's gonna come because my Rubik's Cube is not supposed to look like this. I'm not supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to, I had this huge ministry. We were baptizing and this is what I get. Like it wasn't supposed to look like this. If you're in the Bible reading plan, if, hey, let me, let me make a lobby. I do this a lot. Let me make a lobby for the Bible reading plan. You, we think you should read the Bible. Like, look, look at me. We think you should read the Bible. We actually think that. And if you were on the Bible reading plan, you would know that Ethan pulls stuff from the liturgy all the time from the Bible reading plan. And so if you're ever in worship and someone's like, yeah, 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 you can fake it and act like you read it that week, but God knows, okay? But man, in the Bible reading plan, you know, we're in, in Luke We hear more of the story of John the Baptist. You know, in Luke 1, John was promised to come by the angel Gabriel to a precious older couple who had suffered from years and years of infertility. That's how the kingdom of God came. Or or he he was born to an older couple. These parents, they were older. Like, they probably had gray hair or no hair, just depending on which way gravity and, you know, your genes are going to take you. Gray hair or no hair. They definitely had grandparent eyes. Like, they probably saw little Johnny never do anything wrong. He could live on locust and honey later in life because they never said no to another cookie, you know? You know, When he was born, his dad, Zechariah, spoke for the first time in over nine months. And he prophesied this over. Just listen to this. Luke chapter 1, verses 67. He prophesied over him and said, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And then listen to this. This this ministered to me this week so much because of the tender mercy of God. He says this, John, your life is going to be a reflection of the tender mercy of God. Like when you get to heaven, you will look at all the stages of your life and you'll be like, that was the tender mercy of God. You look at the highs and the lows, that was the tender mercy of God unfolding in my life. That means that John's birth to this couple that suffered from infertility, it was the tender mercy of God. That means that John's successful ministry when droves were going out and being baptized and repenting of their sin, tender mercy of God. But it also means that his wrongful imprisonment was the tender mercy of God. 
It also means that his coming execution was the tender mercy of God. And I know because I've read Matthew 11 that I already referenced that he didn't always believe it was the tender mercy of God. Jesus, is my life, is the Rubik's Cube of my life, is it in your hands? Or should I put it in someone else's? But I think now he would look at it and he would say, it is the tender mercy loving mercy of God for me. Let's keep going, verse 14. It says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, so these are the very first words that Jesus speaks in the gospel of Mark. And so we're gonna take them just kind of quickly. And so he says this, look at these three phrases. He says, the time is fulfilled. That means all of the Bible, all of the prophets were building to this inaugurating moment. He says, the time has come. It is now time. And then he says, and the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, a different kingdom is invading into this world. And with that kingdom is coming a new way to live, a new way to connect with God, a new way to value his things, his currency, what he says is valuable, a new system. And with that new system to establish it, a new king. And then it says this, repent and believe in the gospel. Like put that all together, it's like turn away from the kingdom you're in and trust in the good news. This gospel about the new authoritative king, everything that follows is the undoings of what is wrong with this world and we see the actions of Jesus undoing so much. See, Jesus is the king of heaven who has come to establish the kingdom of God here by undoing all that is wrong in this world. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And it started. Jesus has the authority to do it, and we see it in all of his doings. Three points. I know you're like, man, we're just getting started. It's actually going to go pretty fast. Three points. King Jesus reorders us into his work is one. Number two, King Jesus commands and dispels our spiritual brokenness, number two. King Jesus untangles the pulling grip of death over us, number three. So number one, King Jesus reorders us into his work. Look at verse 16. We see the calling of the disciples. And so passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And so if you remember, this is John Mark's gospel, and he's writing, it's actually Peter's gospel. So we start, the very first calling we start with is with Peter himself, Simon Peter. And so he says, this is how Jesus met me. This is where I was. This is what I was doing. And so if he was telling the story, I mean, he's a fisherman. He would have lied. He would have been like, man, we were fishing, and we were like catching these Leviathan fish. And then Jesus is like, no, 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 forget that. Follow me. And then he'd be like, and I'm so holy, so I did. And so like, that's what would have happened. Verse 17, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, like if you just read that, and it's kind of weird in how it reads. It's because the ESV is trying really hard to show you what's really going on. Like it says, I will make you become 
fishers of men. Like it's trying to show this progressive state, just like thy kingdom will be coming, that there's a progress when God calls you into his kingdom, that he's saying, I want to change you. I want to grow you. I want to use you. And all you have to do is follow me. You don't have to go fix your life up and then follow me. You don't have to go get a seminary degree and then follow me. Just follow me and in the process, I will be making you become fisher of people. Now, now look at me. The, the mission of God upon your life is not that everyone goes into like vocational ministry and preaches. Like, that'd be, that'd be awful. Don't do that. Not everyone needs to do that. Some, some of you need to do that. It's that God would put a display of your life about a new kingdom and you would show the undoings of the own kingdom in your life through repentant talk when you would tell people of all the ways that you've messed up, but all the ways that God has invaded into your life to change you. It goes on and it keeps going. I mean, he probably would have added in Peter that fish wasn't even that big, you know. But verse 18. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James and the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed them. Like Jesus speaks his mission like he's already, he started off like it's kind of a heading. Like the first words of Jesus could be a heading over everything else where he's saying all of the Bible is about me in this moment. The kingdom of God is invading the realms of this broken world and I'm here to tell you about the good news. You can know God. You can be connected with God. You can be a part of his kingdom here, now. Follow me. I don't want you to hear this wrong. Like, this isn't just a call that a few special people get. God wants to reorientate your life and perhaps what you're already doing, typically what you're already doing, but with a kingdom ethic, because he's saying what you're doing, if it's spiritual, if the Holy Spirit is in you, it matters. In every good endeavor, um, it's, Tim Keller, he's writing about the, the call of work. Like, you know, it's got to be more than just making money and giving it uh, to missions, which, I mean, God wants you to be generous. It's got to be more than just witnessing to your coworkers, and by means you should do that, but that you would have a higher vision of what God has called you to, that you would see something and you would dream about, man, God, what might you use my efforts and my dream? What might you use to accomplish good work that I may never know about until the end? What might you use to reorient my life into your business? And he says this, he says, if the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. That is what the Christian faith promises. See, Christian the authoritative king of the universe still redirects lives into his kingdom. What does that look like for you? 
I, I don't think that, I mean, it might mean God wants you to change careers or change paths. It might just mean that God wants you to think about him working in and what you're doing even now daily. That might be the aspect of thy kingdom come. So first, God is calling us into his work. Second, King Jesus commands and dispels our spiritual brokenness. Right after this calling, you know, it ends where, you know, you know, two different family units, they just call, hey, follow me, and they just jump out of the boat and like, see you, Dad. And I'm sure there's a whole lot more that happened right there. But then we jump into the synagogue. Look at verse 21. Without, I mean, any transition, it says, and they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. Like, at at first, I I find this really dissatisfying. Like, it just said, man, Jesus was this incredible teacher teaching with authority. And yet, if you look down to verse 23, we don't see anything about what he taught. Like, like it doesn't show us anything. It doesn't doesn't mention if he used funny stories about how he hates his dog or, you know, to uh, do a point. It doesn't say, like, he had these incredible prose or what his argumentation. It doesn't say if he had PowerPoint or, I'm sorry, pro presenter. I thought it was 2002 for a moment. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't even say, like, if he alliterated his points. It doesn't give any description other than this. It was authoritative. See, Jesus was talking about the coming kingdom as if it was his kingdom to bring. It was authoritative. When Jesus talked about sin, it was like it was a reference against something that was done to him. It was authoritative. When Jesus talked about forgiveness that you can have, it was as if he was the one who could give it. It was authoritative. When Jesus talked about your life being moved or changed, it was as though he could move or change it. It was authoritative. You know, I, I was, when I was thinking about this, I find sometimes it's kind of the things Jesus just says off the cuff that are the, the most, like, ridiculous, crazy things that you could ever claim. You know, in Luke 10, it's coming in the Bible reading plan, so you can act next week like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah Luke 10. In Luke 10... You know, after he sends the disciples out two by two, he says, hey, don't take anything with you. Just go preach the good news. And they all go and they come back and they're astonished. And they're like, Jesus, you wouldn't even believe it. Man, we were preaching and we cast out demons and all these kind of things. Even the demons obeyed us. And he says this thing. He's like, yeah, man, that was crazy. Like when I saw Satan fall from heaven, crazy. Like, just kind of off the cuff, like, they're like, are you talking Isaiah 14 moment? How old are you? He taught as one who was authoritative. And, like, we actually see this. Yeah, I mean, for that, I feel like I, I, (laughs) like, we don't hear anything about the teaching. I feel like I live this. Like, people I hear all the time, like, oh, man, the liturgy was so rich and worship was so great. And I'm like, Anything else noteworthy? Anything at all? And my my wife's like, no, I thought it was good, you know. Um, All right, verse 23. We actually see why nothing about the teaching was really noted other than it was authoritative because it says, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? 
I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Nothing will like be an overture above a good sermon than the old exorcism standing in the way. Like, we don't know exactly what happened, but there was a moment where everyone knew something was wrong, and Jesus commanded. Look what they said. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him? And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. You know, I mean, a guy stands up where everyone's like, he's obviously possessed. You know, I mean, just take all the Stephen King movies and kind of cram it together so you kind of get a picture of what it is. And Jesus just says, shh, get out. And they say, this is something different. Jesus demonstrates authority over spiritual darkness. And he still does. We as modern people, we glance over things like that like it doesn't affect us, and we are wrong. You see, we, we, we've been influenced where we think the only time there's demonic activity going on in someone's life is if their head is spinning around and they're crawling up a wall. And let me just say, if that's happening, let's presume there is demonic activity going on. But I want to say there is demonic activity pressed upon our lives so, so much more often than that. So much more often. A lot more than that. Um. When I was reading, you know, the Bible and, um, and kind of our church fathers, they used to describe demonic activity more as the misappropriation, the perversion or the distortion or the confusion or the exaggeration of our loves and strengths. Meaning Satan lays upon our life to pervert or strengthen, overindulge our loves or our strengths. And like, if you want a picture of that, think of Lord of the Rings. Like if you've, if you've read Lord of the Rings or if you've seen the movie, like it's good and good, okay? And so think of Lord of the Rings and think about the ring itself. What does the ring itself do to everyone it comes into contact with? Like, like if, you, if you think about like the kings, the kings who want power to rule, they become ring rats. They become like shadowy figures, and now all they have is a lust for more power. The thing that they had, the love that they had, the strength that they had, when it brushes against the ring, it becomes exaggerated. It takes over everything in their life. Or, or, or think about Smeagol. Smeagol, the, the, the lover of beauty and good and just joy. He comes across the ring and everything is stripped away from him. So he's a skeleton of a creature and all he can think about is my precious. Or, or, or think of Frodo himself. You know, Frodo, humble, ha happy to serve hobbit. You know, I need second breakfast kind of thing. Like when he becomes across the ring and he bears it better than others, what you see is a time he becomes inward he starts to self-pity. He becomes a martyr, trusting no one. 
Or think about Boromir, the, the good king who just wants to rule and protect his people. He just wants to protect his country from the invading power or what might take it. When the ring touches his life, he becomes murderous. The ends justify the means always. Like Tolkien, when he's writing about this, he's showing us how spiritual power presses upon our life to grow our loves in an inordinate way and to grow our strengths in a damning way. Like the demonic power that consumes us is more like the seductive power of the ring. It perverts, distorts, enslaves our loves and our strengths. Have you ever felt that in your life? What something started off as good, it just became darker. Or like, I mean, think about this. Like it touches ambition and it ends in a never satisfied compulsion. Or or it brushes against pleasure and it ends in addiction. Or it grips sexuality and it turns every image of God into an objectified commodity. Or it gazes upon health and body and it ends in insecurity or diagnoses such as bulimia or anorexia, or it beholds companionship, and it ends in codependency. We're fools if we don't see a spiritual element weighing upon our lives such as that. Have you ever felt any of those pulls? Have you ever considered that there might be demonic influences pressing on that? And that doesn't mean that we don't just fight the flesh and we don't confess our sins. It doesn't mean those things are out, but it means we pray a little bit differently. See, the first thing is we see Jesus, the strong son of God, coming to establish his kingdom. And he looks at lives and he just calls them into his business. And then he looks at spiritual influences and he just says, shh, be gone. He is redoing the things in this world to bring about his kingdom. And then the third thing that we see, King Jesus untangles the pulling grip of death. Look at verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue, which I I just find, I mean, obviously you're starting to see a lot of immediately's. um, But it's like this moment. I mean, think about the moment. Like he just taught in such a way that everybody was like, that's incredible. Someone stood up, he cast out a demon. It said that he was the Holy One of God. And he said, hey, just be quiet. And everyone was like, who even does this? And he's like, well, I gotta go, guys. You know, and so he finds himself. Immediately he left the synagogue, entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came He took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left, and she began to serve them. And so so Peter's mother-in-law was sick. Like, like, isn't sickness the pulling grip of death? Like, Like, sometimes we get over it. Sometimes we have medicine for it. Sometimes it doesn't go away. Sometimes we suffer. Sometimes it always eventually wins. And so the pulling grip of death was upon her life, and Jesus enters in. But sickness is not the only pulling grip of death. Fear can be a pulling grip of death. Depression, anxiety, doubt, like things that would lead to self-destruction or relationship destruction. They're the pulling grip of death upon our life. And Jesus enters in. And look what he does. Like, Do you see the kingdom that he's bringing? 
You see the kingdom that he says that is at hand. See, at his hands is the authority over whatever haunts you. At his hands is the authority over all body brokenness. At his hands is his tender, loving mercy for your life. At his hands, he is establishing the new kingdom that will exist forever and ever and ever. And just like John the Baptist, you might be holding up your Rubik cube and you might be saying, this prison cell doesn't look right. And you need the hands that describe the tender, loving mercy of God. But there's only one way to get the tender, loving mercy of God. And we find it right there in verse 31. You just read it. Verse 31, and he, Jesus, came and took her, Peter's sick mother-in-law, took her by the hand and lifted her up. The word right there is agaro. I, I, I may not get this right. Every healing that I could find in the Gospel of Mark, it uses the word agaro, raising up. And it's the same word that we find in Mark 16, verses 6 and 7, where it talks about Jesus being resurrected. And so this is what we see in Mark 16, verse 6. It says, and he said to them, this is the angel. So Mary and Mary, both Marys, they go to find Jesus at the tomb they want to anoint his body and they get there and he's gone and the angel of the lord says this do not be alarmed you seek jesus of nazareth who was crucified he has been risen Egero. he is not here see the place where they laid him but go and tell the only way to get in the kingdom of god is for jesus to take you by the hand and to raise you up See, you can't climb in with good works or right thinking or perfect theology. Those things will not raise you up. Jesus died to join us in our state. Jesus was raised up to God so that he could raise us up. Our only hope is resurrection power. Jesus came to undo all that's broken. Is there something in your life that you need to hold up that Rubik's Cube and say, man, could you undo this? You know, and we actually see here, how do we know if we've been raised up? Look at Peter's mother-in-law. She got up. And she started to joyfully obey and serve Jesus. Resurrection power starts the kingdom of God in your life. It starts to make you a kind of person in this brackish life. Where the kingdom of God has entered, it is growing and taking back all that has been touched by the enslaving power of sin but it's not all here yet. But what would you hold up? See, the elements, they really preach, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. 
You know, every week when we look at uh, communion, we remember that we're looking forward to the full consummation when sin and death are no more because Jesus has vanquished the grave once and for all, for all people who trust in him. And so we remember that the bread reminds us that his body was broken. The wine reminds us that his blood was spilled. What makes you a Christian is saying this. It's looking at the Lord's table and saying, I will sit at his table. I will sit where his hands are. So Christian, the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Jesus spilled for your life. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, <clears throat> I pray that you would orientate our hearts and, Lord, you would prepare us to really celebrate. Lord, we get to celebrate two lives that have said, I will sit at the table of God. I will hand the Rubik's Cube of my life to Jesus and whatever he does with it, it will be enough. And we get to celebrate that. But Lord, as we hear their testimony, it's also an invitation for us. Have we stepped into that moment and have we said yes to Jesus? And so Lord, I pray that that would stir in us. But it also stir, for every Christian here, it also stir, like what is the Rubik's Cube of my heart that just feels really messed up that I just need a hand to the hands of Jesus to undo? Father, I pray that you'd be present. I pray as we worship and as we sing and as we cheer uh, that you would be present and it would be pleasing to you. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done.